0: watched this morning, and it was better the second time around. It's so good. So if you're able at all to come to that, this series is on the church. Mark Dever is a guy who's the individual being interviewed who's speaking to those elements about what's true of the church from Scripture. Super encouraging, and he is just a unique individual in his gift and his ability. He's very well educated, but he's super good at just communicating very clearly. So uh, just strongly encourage you to come to that. Also wanted to tell you, I uh, had a leaders meeting Saturday, yesterday, and one of the things we talked about was messages, messages here. Um, when you, uh, I didn't start my timer. That's a danger for you, so let me start before I forget. Uh, when you speak, if you're teaching God's Word, there's sort of one thing that you know, that you depend on, that you can rely on, and that's that God will use His Word. Uh, God will use His Word. Isaiah says, you know, it never comes back void. It's like rain on the ground, Hebrew says. God will use, use His Word. But when you're teaching, you have no idea what that looks like. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's coming. They've got, they're coming from a different place. Some are encouraged. Some are discouraged. Some are well-informed. Some are less well-informed. And so, you you speak, you teach out of Scripture, but you don't know what its impact is going to be like. Uh, one of the one of the challenges, uh, and this is where I'm going with this, uh, when you come in on a Sunday morning, no matter who's teaching or what that looks like, uh, we don't want to be overwhelmed because we heard something we didn't understand. So, when you come, if you can tell yourself this, whatever was taught, whatever... I listen to, if I take one actionable point away, that's success. So don't worry about what you don't understand. Don't worry about a word you heard or or uh, you felt like a bunch of it went over your head. Just ask God, what do you want me to hear this morning? So if that's all you take away, that's fine. A couple of examples of this. Um, when I was a young guy, I looked up to one of my neighbors. His, his name was uh, Marion uh, I was going to say Shroal, my old uh, captain <laughs> at the fire department. What was, was Marion's last name? Carver. Marion Carver, a very dear friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> you are looking at a guy who's approaching 70. So, Marion Carver. So uh, Marion played basketball at Hayden High School, and that was my dream was to be a Hayden Wildcat and, and play basketball for Hayden. When I played with Marion in the summers, he's about three years older than me, he never called me Mike, it was always Halpin, it wasn't really derogatory, but he'd say, Halpin, don't do that fake, nobody's going to go for that. So he'd give me corrections all the time, but this is what he said, I've never forgotten. He said, always play with people better than you. He said, if you don't, you won't improve. So, so play up. Play with people that will challenge you because you'll learn, you'll become a better basketball player. For years, I took, I uh, had a subscription to National Review, William Buckley's political journal. And guys, honestly, um, I, I loved lots of things about William Buckley, he was such a character, and there, there were lots of good writing, of course. But when I would read that political journal, um, part of what I loved was I had to have a dictionary with me. Because Buckley and others who wrote in it, they were using words I'd never heard. Well, that didn't put me off. I, I was going to learn because I was reading people smarter than me. And they had a vocabulary better than my vocabulary. And I w- and seriously, on this journal, some of those articles I understood. And some of them on international business and economics were straight over my head. But I still got it because there was so much I could learn and it called me up. You know what I mean? It, it required something of me. So when we're coming on Sunday morning, don't worry if you go away saying, I, I don't think I understood this concept or that or I got lost someplace in the middle. What did you hear that you go away thinking, that's what God wants me to think about? That's what, that's what we want to take away. And I have no idea on a given Sunday what that will be for any of you, right? I have no idea. So we're, we want to be faithful to speak out of God's word, but the rest is up to him. And then it's up to us when we're hearing it, Lord, what does that require of me? Okay? So we want to be called up, Lord, what, do you, what are you saying to your servant today? What does that require of me? Okay, that's all free. Now let's, let's get to the paid version. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at Psalm 47 this morning. And I want to prep just where the psalm is going to take us. Uh, Webster's identifies, defines the word praise this way. It originally meant to set a price or to appraise. So I'm looking at something and I'm putting a valuation on it. That's what praise originally meant. Price, the words price and prize are from that same word. I prize something because it's highly valuable. I set a price on it. Uh, to commend, to applaud, to express approval or admiration. To extol in words or in song. To magnify, to glorify. So praise broadly. We're thinking about what's the value of a thing or a person. What, what estimation do I put on them? And then, of course, what's the implication of that? Praise can be sung, spoken, written. We could praise lots of things. We can praise our children when they obey. We can praise our pets when they obey. Do you guys ever train dogs? It's like, good, 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 because you want to reproduce that behavior. So we can praise lots of different directions. The psalm this morning, of course, is going to orient us in praise towards God himself. Numerous words, numerous commands, numerous examples of praise directed to God are seen throughout the Bible. And to cue us just a little bit, here are some examples of what this looks like in the New Testament, not Psalm 47 where we're going, but in the letters written to the churches, this theme of praising God and specifically in thinking of corporate meetings on Sunday morning, not only praising God, which we could just say, praise God but praising God through song, through singing. So listen to just a few of these examples. In Acts 16, and and this is certainly a a visual one, uh, after Paul and and Silas are attacked, stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail. So they've been attacked, stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail. They're jailed and they're chained up that night. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Now we get that, right? They're praying. We're in a bad fix, Lord. What are you going to do about it? And then it says, and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There there was a praise meeting for them in prison. After that experience of abuse, they sat there that night and they were singing praise to God, and the other prisoners were getting the benefit because that's what they were hearing. Uh, Romans fifteen, eight and nine says in part, Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles That's probably most, if not all of us in this room. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Christ's work in part to bring praise to God the Father through people like us, Gentiles, declaring God's praise in song. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, we won't get into the theology that's presented here, But Paul said, I will will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing praise with my mind, with understanding. I know what I'm declaring about God, and I know it to be true. Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's a Colossians 3.16 that's right along the same line. Uh, James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So my experience at the moment is I'm suffering. And James says, well, pray about that. Take that to the Lord in prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I'm cheerful. I have thanks to give to God. I'm going to do that through singing praise. And then this last, Revelation 15, 3, looking to a future day. It says, these folks in heaven, this is in the courts of heaven, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There's this praise in song going on in heaven itself, still yet to come. So if you look around the world, there are many, many, many praiseworthy things, activities, people, you name it. But guys, we were made not only to be in a personal relationship with God, but you and I are hardwired to praise God. We're hardwired to praise God, and our life is called to be a life of praise to God. If we look at our life, if we assess and we say praise, and you could, you could say this in different terms. You might say giving thanks to God, praise to God, worshiping God, taking my cues from God. If, if your life isn't defined that way, you're not living the normal Christian life. That's what you're wired for. It's what you're made for. And if our eyes are open and our ears are open even a little bit to God and His goodness, praise is the fruit of knowing almost anything about God if we're redeemed. Now, if you're not redeemed, that's another issue, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, Alan Ross summarizes Psalm 47. You can open your Bibles or your apps there. This way, all people and nations of the world are called to acclaim the sovereignty of the Lord, who has subdued all nations, given his people an inheritance, and has ascended on high where he reigns with absolute authority. So that's Psalm 47 in a nutshell. And we're going to read it this morning. I'm going to read through it. It's short, nine verses, and then we'll take that apart, sort of the big themes. We'll look at those individually. Psalm 47, the introduction there is to the choir master. This was written to be sung in the temple. And it, like the others, it says a psalm of or for the sons of Korah. So this is the psalmist admonition to Israel in their day and to us in ours. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah, we would pause or we would consider that thought. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So there's this not only this call to praise, but guys, this is a little unique, not, not unique entirely in the Psalms, but unlike lots of the Psalms, this one is a call to the nations, not Israel, not Israel only. This is a call to the nations of the world to praise Israel's God. We're going to look at it this way. We'll go through in order the commands to praise God, the means of praise that this psalmist is bringing in view in Psalm 47 the reasons for praise, and then very briefly as we wind down, the effects of praise. So, commands to praise, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 7 and 8. So, this song is a call for all people in all places through all time to praise and worship the Lord. Verse 1, when it says, clap your hand, all peoples. This isn't just to Israel. This isn't a Jewish psalmist calling Israel to praise. This says, everyone across the globe, everyone in all nations. And it's from, the psalmist has this call, he's a Jew among God's covenant people, and so he's issuing the call to the nations to praise as someone who's in that privileged position of proximity to God, but he's calling them into that same relationship. Know God like we do, and the fruit will be, you will praise Him as well. And he does so in part by demonstrating this, the psalmist says, our God, the God that we know personally and that we're calling you to praise with us, our God is the high God because he's the one that defeated the nations. That when we came in through the exodus, our God displaced the peoples, the nations who were already here, because he's more powerful than anyone or any other so-called God. So come and learn about the living and true God. In verse 1, you've got the call to, to all peoples, verses 2 and 7, all the earth, and verse 8, all nations. So again, most of the songs are for Israel, but this one is a call to the Gentiles, people like you and me, uh, people like our forebears that weren't part of that privileged community in the Middle East. So a call to life, to recognize God as God, in faith to give him his due, really it's a shout It's a shout to the nations to come and behold the God who's worthy of all of their praise. Now, we would say today, and as we've done with the other psalms, we want to say not only this is the song in its context, but we want to say something about what does that look like for us? What are the implications of that song that was written to people generations ago under a different covenant? What does it look like for us to put that into practice in our own lives? Well, today, the gospel is not only a call to people to repent of rebellion and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, but it's a call to come and worship and praise to do exactly what the psalmist was calling Israel and the nations to do in his day. So the gospel is not just about forgiveness, it's about this call to see God as the object of ultimate praise. In the church today, and I, I love this, So in Psalm uh, Psalm 47, let's just say this is written around, uh, uh, let's just say, 1,000 B.C. So 1,000 B.C., the call is for the nations to praise and worship. And put this in context here. In the church today, God is saving people from all nations, all ethnic backgrounds, all languages. That's the truth of the church today today. So, a bit of Psalm 47 is being fulfilled today because Gentiles, the nations represented by you and I and our forebears, are being saved in the church and are coming in just as Psalm 47 called them to, recognizing who God is and declaring his praise. Uh, Think of this this is from the early church, Romans 15, 5 and 6. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, it's a church that's composed of Jews who would have known Psalm 47 on one hand, but also of Gentiles. The nations were represented in the church at Rome as well. And there Paul says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jews and Gentiles would together form, as it were, one voice to give praise to God. That's Psalm 47. And you see it in the life of the early church. So in the church now, there's a bit of a foretaste because, guys, this still gets fulfilled in a very a direct, literal way. There are times yet coming on the earth in which the nations of the world as nations, not not as Christians in the church, in the church today, but as nations will join in the worship of God with Jews. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. So there's this call. It's really a call. It's a command to praise, to the nations to praise. And then there's the means of praise. You see this in verse 1 and then, then again in verse 6 and 7. And as we talk about this, see, does this reflect the way you and I praise? Or does this reflect what praise looks like for us on Sunday morning? And it doesn't have to look like this all the time, But this is a great call. So, verse 1 says, Clap, shout, sing. Verse 6 says, Sing praises. Sing praises. Did you hear me? Sing praises. Sing praises. Four times in one verse. And then, verse 7, if you missed it there, sing praises. So, the book of Psalms is literally a book of songs. These were written, of course, to be sung. And many of the songs include notations that directed what kind of instruments to use or what kind of melody line they were going to sing to. The commands to praise throughout Scripture are many, and they're repeated often through the book of Psalms. So here's Mike's short list. These are commands by which we praise God. This is what it looked like. Clap, shout, sing, praise, give thanks, make a joyful noise, bow in worship, tell of God's goodness, tell of God's salvation, ascribe to the Lord glory, ascribe to the Lord praise, rejoice, be glad, exalt, make known, bless the Lord, use the lyre, various melodies, trumpets, horns, cymbals. You get the picture, yeah. So it's bringing all that you are and all that you have, and it's being given as praise to God. Now, Sometimes football games, I think there's a game on later today. Someone told me. There's a football game on later today. Now, do you guys, there's a distinction to be made here, so I don't want, let's do apples to apples. If you're watching a football game that you're emotionally invested in, it's not hard for you to work up emotion, is it? Right? Your, your, your heart's on the floor when they lose the ball. You, you don't restrain yourself when the touchdown or they win the game at the end, Right? The game, that, that game, we might say maybe it's a microcosm of life, but it's different because we know in three hours this game's going to be played and it's won or lost and, and we're in it emotionally. Life's not like that broadly, certainly. And church isn't necessarily like that on Sunday morning. But, but think of this. It is easy for us to get excited and not try and maintain our composure. Some of you are going to look really silly later today and you're going to sound really silly later today, and you won't think anything about it because you're so caught up in what you're doing, what's before you. You are emotionally engaged. Well, that's really what the psalmist is calling us to. And guys, there's no object. There's no game. There's nothing else in life that is greater than us knowing Christ and in knowing Him, knowing something about Him, being emotionally engaged with Him, this overflow of emotion should be a given so that if we look at our life and and it's spiritually deadpan again i would just tell you we're missing something that is not the normal christian life and i think lots of us have been deadened because our imaginations and our our view of life the things that are filling our minds are not generally related to god and his things it's a multitude of other things And we lose that enthusiasm for God because He's not the focus of our life. Uh, This song is primarily about corporate worship with others in the temple. And the, the, the comparison of that for us would be a Sunday morning gathering, wouldn't it? It's the group together. So we could talk about private praise. But that's not this song. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about corporate praise and worship. And when the church meets on Sunday mornings, we want to accomplish several things. So we want to take in God's Word. I want to come in and I want to hear what God has said through the Scriptures. We want to proclaim the Gospel, that there's a message about a person and he's the difference between your eternal future, what that looks like. We want to talk about Christ and the gospel. We want to bless, in each other, uh, bless and encourage each other in fellowship. That's 1 Corinthians 14. That when we gather together, we're edified or we're built up. That's the interaction we not only have with the worship time or the message, but that's the way we impact each other. We encourage each other and to praise and worship God in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, sing praises with a psalm. Now, this is interesting Uh, the the word that's translated in the ESV psalm there is, is masculine. Do you guys remember we've talked about masculine? So those earlier psalms in book two, and we said a masculine meant that this was a song of instruction. This was a song that was meant to give you wisdom. Well, that's the term used here. Sing praises with wisdom. Sing praises with thoughtfulness. So the thought would be for us to, in fact, I love the New English Bible translation says, A praise or sing to God with all your, now catch this, art, not heart, with all your art. The thought is this, that when you're coming to praise God, it's not this haphazard thing, it's not thoughtless, but that I am, I'm coming thoughtfully, my mind is filled with things that are true about God, and so it's not the last thing on my mind. It's what fills my mind. So when I come to give praise, I'm doing it thoughtfully, skillfully, artfully. Now, um, we we are blessed. Let me let me tell you a little bit about what this looks like for me on Sunday mornings. We're blessed with uh, Sean and Bill and Josiah, the guys that are leading us in worship on Sunday morning they don't start Sunday morning when they show up here for worship. So they get the message, they get the text at least that's going to be taught sometime before that, usually a week earlier. So when they put the songs together, they're, they're attempting to do what Psalm 47 says, which is make this um, an art form not in, in pretension, but in thoughtfulness that we're giving God our very best so when they're putting songs together they're trying to put songs together that meld well with one another but also that complement the message and they do a great job week after week that they're doing what psalm 47 talks about and that's why you'll you'll stand here and sit here and sing on sunday mornings and you go by saying i was so encouraged in those songs the lyrics spoke from the message too well that's because they're bringing that thought of bringing skill and thoughtfulness to bear in what we're doing when we worship. And we've got these, this crazy team of musicians and singers and dedicated tech department that help us come in and do what Psalm 47 talks about. But there's effort behind that. And that's what that word in verse 7 was talking about. It's not the last thing on our mind. We're thinking about it. We're intentional about it. God's worthy of our best not just what we can drag in on Sunday morning. We've said in the worship, we want our songs to be theologically significant and musically memorable. That's sort of our standard. Theologically significant and musically memorable because that's part of the standard of bringing to God our best, something that we can remember and take with us. Uh, The New Testament also describes praise and worship in other ways. You can read this In Hebrews, uh, the fruit of our lips, giving praise to God, what we say. uh, Sometimes financial giving is is referred to as praise to God. But this, this morning, again, not the personal only scale, but really the corporate gathering of the church together. In our times here, exuberance in praise should be the norm. Exuberance in praise should be the norm. And I say this, uh, no one's interested... In uh, putting on a front, okay so uh, we, we don't, if we don't come in happy clappy that 's okay if you you know oftentimes, if we feel down in the dumps emotionally or we 've sinned we 're embarrassed, whatever, and we say well i don 't want to go to church well that 's the time you need to go to church the most, and if you come in in that mindset you'll still be blessed and encouraged, and you can simply, I can confess my sin to God. If somebody asks me how I'm doing, I can say, well, I've done better. I don't have to be dishonest. Nobody's looking for anybody to put a happy face on an unhappy experience. But when we get here, we do want to do this. So we're honest with God, we're honest with each other, but we want to lean in to the command to praise God because the truth is this. When we gather and we see more of Christ and more of who and what God is and what he's like, you'll be transcended out of the experience you're in when you come in because you'll be encouraged by who God is and what he's like and how he interacts with us. Praise will lift us. Praise will change our experience. And and that's a good thing, and that's good. So we want to give ourselves to that. Recognize the reality of where we're at emotionally or spiritually coming in. Down all good, but we want to lean in to the command to praise that 's good for god it 's appropriate, and it 's certainly good for us as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, standing, sitting, kneeling, all appropriate postures, if our hearts don 't readily give themselves to praising god it 's often because we haven 't seen enough God of God. I want to talk about that next, but if I say my life isn 't um, defined. Uh, praise isn't the norm uh, then we say we actually need we can solve that by learning more about god this is the third reasons for praise this is verses two and three uh, verse five and then verses eight and nine before i'm getting to the verses from the psalm on a basic level we would say because god is creator and we're his creatures we should praise him we should take our cues in life from god because he's our maker uh, psalms i think 95 and maybe 100 will talk about that he's our maker it's what we do we're not god he's god he's our maker we're the maid and we reflect that because we give him thanks we say thank you god you're god we're not idolatry is worship gone bad praise and worship that's misdirected Now, guys everyone's an idolater more or less often and it's anything that gets between us and god it's something that displaces god from who he really is, and what he really deserves from us. Anything along that line is idolatry. All of us, at one time or another, are idolaters. But something has taken the affection of our hearts, has taken the view of our life away from God in ways that God never intended. Here's an example. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I think. Revelation 4 describes the scene moves from the churches on earth to John has this view of what's going on in heaven. And he sees a throne, and he sort of describes in, in very enigmatic terms, he describes the, the vision of, of the one that's sitting on the throne. But there around the throne, there are these four, he says, they're living creatures. And they've got wings, but this is the thing that defines them. They've got eyes. They've got a lot of eyes. It says they're covered with eyes in front and behind and inside, within. So eyes are our vision, eyes are knowledge, eyes are the ability to take in reality. And so when these four living creatures around the throne, that and what they've been gifted with is this unique ability to see God as he is, they're comprised of eyes, what do they do? They just keep saying, holy, holy, holy. Amen. They see God as he is. And all they can do is praise some people think heaven's gonna be boring. <laughs> not, not, not the case. I talk I was on a house job one time years ago. There was an old painter. You know, you'd always like to engage these guys where you're at spiritually. This old painter we're talking. And he told me he liked to watch somebody back in the day, uh, I don't know, Jimmy, somebody. Anyway, I said, well, you know, where are you going? What's your view, you know, of heaven, where are you going? And uh, what do you think of heaven? <laughs> he said he didn't think he wanted to go to heaven. He never liked organ music. <laughs> True story. So his view of heaven is organ music, and I never really cared for organ music, Rick. I, I don't know. So, But these living creatures, this is what heaven's like. So when you and I get there, we see God as he is. And guys, at that point... Our constitution has been changed. We're shed of these mortal bodies that can't take in God. You know, through Scripture, when mere mortals look at God, you know what happens to them? They fall out. They fall down. They can't stay conscious in God's presence. But with immortal bodies like Christ, you and I will be able to see God as He is. And the response will be not boredom and organ music. It'll be, wow, 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 holy, holy, holy. We will praise. Well, that's what we want to start entering into now. That's the future. That's coming. We'll see that yet. And the four living creatures just remind us of that. We have a window that opens on the west, and uh, I never get tired of the sunsets, the sunsets between the trees over the little cemetery that's in our neighborhood. And, guys, it's, you know if it's not cloudy, every time I see it, I still stop and just say, wow, that is so pretty. Or every night I go out and look at the stars. You know, the stars never get old to me. I had my binoculars out last night. The glories that God's put in the heaven, they never gets old. So for you and I, the thing is, if we say we're not motivated to a life of praise and worship, it's because we don't know enough about God. We haven't seen enough of Him. Because for the redeemed to see God ends up in praising God. You won't be able to help it. That's the thing. Uh, Verse 2 says, for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So two points here. Yahweh is the most high. There's no other God that can compete with God, with Yahweh, with Elohim, with the the one who's from eternity past to eternity future. There's no competition. So the psalmist is saying, guys, uh, this isn't your little demigod. This is God most high I'm talking about. And God Most High is to be feared. He's like a great king that doesn't reign over one little nation or one city state. He reigns over all the earth. That's who Israel's calling the nations to worship. So think of this. In contrast to the nations, there's a story, I believe it's in Judges. One of the enemies, they battle Israel and they lose. And so the enemy's thinking is this. You know what? They're God. He's a God of, I may get this backwards, so... You check it out later. Uh, they say to themselves, well, their God, he's a God of mountains. So we'll come in and we'll gauge them next time in the battle. We'll be in the valley because a God of the mountains, he can't be the God of the valley too. That, that's the way the pagans thought of this God, he rules over this area. And guys, there are, by the way, spiritual entities, demonic principalities and powers that have influence over nations and over geographic areas. Daniel talks very specifically about that but their view of god was these are little gods and they're limited gods in where they are and the jews are saying you don't get it he is the most high god he's over everything you would call god and because that's the case he is to be feared he is to be feared he's awesome the wisdom literature in the old testament affirms this you got it in job 28:28 28, 28 on your Study sheet, it's repeated, Psalm 111, 10, Proverbs nine, ten. It's repeated over and over, and it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If we don't start life with the fear of the Lord, because He's the Most High God, and friends, because your life now and your eternity is in God's hand to do with as He sees fit. And if you don't recognize that and fear Him appropriately, you are not comported to reality. So, this call to praise, to recognize Israel's God is most high, and as most high, we should bring fear and awe into his presence and our praise. It's to God that every person will give account, Hebrews 9 and Revelation 20. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, Luke 12. Don't fear those who can only kill your body. We say, man, that's severe. Don't fear those who can only imprison you, beat you, kill your body. But Jesus says, but fear him who can not only kill your body, but cast your soul into hell. And then he says in Luke's gospel for exclamation, yes, fear him. Fear him. So even for the redeemed, now this is the thing, for the redeemed, I know, Larry prayed earlier, I know that my sins are forgiven, and I know that I have access to God Most High with nothing between God and me except my sin or confession, right? So is God still fearful and awesome? And I say, absolutely. But you know, like a a small child to a, a big, muscular father, on one hand, the child might say, I really respect my dad. I don't want to get on his wrong side. On the other hand, he says, but he's really my dad, and in any kind of trouble, I run into his arms. Well, that's true for the redeemed. Do we still revere, have awe, and fear towards God? Absolutely. But does that fear, that awesome element of God, and our knowledge of that, does it send us away? Well, we say, absolutely not. We, re- we see him as he is. But we're redeemed and He's our Father, so it doesn't drive us away. It helps us worship Him for who He is and what He's truly like. Uh, Verse 3 says this, uh, Israel speaking here, He subdued, God subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. If you remember earlier at Psalm 44, the psalmist said, Hey, Lord, we get it, that we didn't destroy the nations that we dispossessed. that That really, that was you. That you used our armies and we fought battles, but we understand that it was really you that won those battles for us. Spurgeon says this of this verse. He says, omnipotence, which is terrible in order to crush. God has all power. His power, His omnipotence is terrible to crush. Think of the nations defeated before Israel's armies. But that same omnipotence is almighty to protect. So here's the psalmist saying God's power is in us and through us to defeat every enemy. That's the the upside of the power, and he protects us, but if you're opposed to him, God's power is something to be afraid of. We want to be on God's side. The nations are called to praise because God rules over them too. Christians can praise and rejoice because Jesus has overcome our greatest adversary, sin, death, and Satan. You know, for the Jews living in the land, everything was about long life in the land of promise, in that covenant relationship they had with God. But for us today, we would say, there are Christians in every nation of the world. We're not talking about national issues anymore. We're talking about personal issues, our relationship in and through a church, and we say, in this context, it's it's not a nation that we're concerned about, it's our own sin. And Jesus has conquered sin. He's paid for our sin. He's conquered death. He's, he's conquered the enemies that we needed ultimately to be conquered. And then verse 5 says this, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Praise God because He has gone up. Verse 8, God reigns over the nation. God sits on His holy throne. Past tense, He went up. Present tense, He's on His throne and He's ruling. He's, he's ruling and reigning present tense. Verse 5 and 8, may picture people who comment on the song uh, varying their opinions. For the Jews, God was ruling and reigning on a throne in Jerusalem in the temple. His presence was over the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. God's ruling and reigning. There he is right there in Jerusalem. He's the king in Jerusalem over Israel specifically. But probably better because he's talking about ruling over all the nations. The thought is that God rules on high sovereignly. From heaven. He's not limited geographically. We've talked about this before to some spot on the earth like their demigods were. No, he's ensconced in heaven and he rules therefore from heaven over all the earth. I want to highlight this too. Uh, the New Testament sees Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven as a great conquering king defeating his enemies and ascending his throne. So in the Old Testament, we're thinking about Yahweh and what he's done for us and he rules from heaven. But the New Testament takes that and it applies it to Jesus. Here are a couple of ways. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Jesus says, you remember, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. I'm the king over every king. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. And you're my emissaries. And with the authority of the great king over every other power, I tell you to do this. You go out and you make disciples, and you make disciples in all nations. My followers in all nations. Jesus is speaking as the king who's on the throne, who has all power and authority. He has power, and he has the authority to exercise that power. That's Jesus. He's the high king in Matthew 28. By the way, you know, Matthew's gospel is meant to convince the Jews that Jesus is their messianic king, and then it also shows that Jesus is more than just their messianic king he's king to the nations as well and you go out on matthew 28 and he's the king over all the nations because that's where his emissaries are going you got this in hebrews 1 3 after making purification for sin jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high now imagine this jesus has conquered sin satan and death he's risen from the grave he ascends back to heaven and then it says he has a seat now who's he sitting next to so to speak. He's sitting next to God, the Father. And the Father says, Son, Junior, you've done your work. Come and sit on your throne because your work is over. That that work of conquering sin, Satan, and death is over. And now he's ensconced in heaven today on the throne. And that's Revelation chapter 5. Amen. Jesus sits on the throne in heaven today. He went up. He's the king ensconced on his throne. Acts one nine describes a cloud taking Jesus out of sight As he rose from the Mount of Olives to heaven, it says in a cloud, uh, the language is something like, in a uh, cloud took him out of sight as he rose up to heaven. And guys, when we hear this image of Jesus on a cloud, does this ring any bells for anybody? Because this is a big deal visually. This image of Jesus in a cloud is a big deal. We've talked about this before, but in Daniel 7, you've got the kingdoms of the earth. The nations are represented in these kingdoms that would come and go. But you've got at the end of this, this, uh, this parade of nations that would come and rule over portions of the world, you've got, it says, the Son of Man. And He comes up to the Ancient of Days. And He's given a kingdom that lasts forever. And the Son of Man comes on a Cloud. And you remember also what Jesus told the Pharisees and, the, and the, the Sanhedrin that got him in trouble? He says, by the way, you won't see me again until you see me coming on the clouds of glory, Matthew 24, in power and glory. So when this says this cloud took Jesus out of sight, that's the Son of Man from Daniel 7. That, that's the one that God had always said this eternal king is going to set up a kingdom that never ends. That's Jesus and here it is. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, reflecting imagery from Psalm 2, say, to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue declare that he is Lord to God's glory. That everyone, sinners and saints alike, will bow to Jesus and say, you're it. You're the king. You're the Lord. You're the sovereign ruler. Ephesians 4.8 is a quote from Psalm 68. And I love this. The, the imagery is this. A king has come in and He's conquered. And so he sits on his throne, and then his subjects are brought before him. And to those subjects who were faithful and loyal to him, he gives gifts. He, he hands out gifts to those folks that were his through the battle. And so in Ephesians 4, when it quotes Psalm 68, it says he gave gifts to men. Those are the spiritual gifts given to those to serve the church. Just as Psalm 47 said... God gave Israel this land, their inheritance. King Jesus gives gifts to those in his church. It's the same imagery. Psalm 47 in a different light, so to speak. Then, of course, Revelation 19.16, right at the second coming, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. So when we talk about in the Old Testament, Psalm 47, God's ruling and reigning over the nations, today we're saying... He has been identified as God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, ruling over the nations of the world today from His throne until He comes, Revelation 19, to make the kingdoms of this world His kingdom. I want to pause just to say, is Jesus our King? See, you're King. So one thing is, is Jesus my Savior? Do I know that my sins are forgiven because I've trusted Christ to save me? He's the Good Shepherd and He gives us life he leads us all the way home is that true for you and do you know it because if you don't you need to Jesus saves us and he saves us Hebrew says to the uttermost nothing can separate me from the love of God that's been given to me in Christ Jesus is that true for us and if it is true could our life be described as a king's loyal faithful servant living life to honor than please the king would that be us It's supposed to be. Is that us? Is Jesus our Savior, critical? Trust in Christ and be saved. And if that's the case, do we recognize that He's our King and our Lord and that we're to take our cues in living and in dying from Him? Is that true for us? Verse 9, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And that speaks of a fulfillment of This is Genesis 12, 3. It's just one of the most important verses in all the Bible because of its repercussions down through the ages. But God told Abraham, through your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, we're told in Scripture that ultimately that means the seed of Abraham is Jesus, the ultimate seed, and he's the one, through Jesus, all nations of the earth are blessed. For Christians in the age of the church, we're told, this is Galatians 3, 3, I'll just pass on this briefly, Galatians 3, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. That verse in Genesis that says the nations will be blessed, that's true of you as a descendant of Abraham spiritually because you have his, that same faith Abraham had in God Most High. That's true of us today. But I want to mention, and winding down, that in the future, Scripture talks about this day... Um, I talked to your dad about this. These are verses that um, they get no play. I don't know why. In the millennial kingdom, Psalm 47 is going to be fulfilled. Psalm 47 will be fulfilled in Jesus' reign on the earth in millennium yet future. And listen to this. This is Zechariah 14, 16 In the millennial reign of Jesus, the nations will go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths, the Gentiles are going to go join the Jews in Jerusalem to worship God, Jesus, present at the Feast of Booths. But listen to this one, and I'll read it. Um, It's a passage you probably don't remember, even if you've read through Isaiah multiple times. This is Isaiah 19, 19 through 25. So this future day in the millennium. Now, if you look historically, who were some of uh, Israel's key enemies? Because this text mentions two of them. So the Assyrians devastated Israel. Think of Nineveh and the Assyrians and Egypt, right? But listen to what God says is going to happen to these nations in the future. The Egyptians will know the Lord. They'll have a relationship with God in that day and they'll worship with sacrifice and offering and they'll make vows to the Lord and perform them and the Lord will strike Egypt striking and healing and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them Z Egypt the nations in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria Think of northern Iraq primarily today. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria the work of my hands. Friends, that's language that God applies elsewhere all the time, to Israel only. And Israel, my inheritance. There's a day coming when the call of Psalm 47 is going to be literally fulfilled as the nations of the earth gather to worship in Jerusalem, King Jesus present, and the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Christ. That's yet to occur, but it will. Revelation 7, I'll just mention, has this a multitude that comes out of the great tribulation and they are together. They're from all the nations of the earth and they're worshiping God together. Uh, real real briefly, the effect of praise uh, is good for us. So does God need your praise? He doesn't need it. He is entirely self-sufficient. God is not more or less if you praise him. You are more or less for praising God. God is pleased by our praise because it's appropriate. But He's not made greater or lesser. He's not disappointed. He can be pleased. But God's not affected somehow and He's changed because we praise Him. But we are. We need praise. God isn't diminished for its lack, but we are. In praising God, I hope you find this true, by the way, on Sunday mornings here. Here. We're liberated from ourselves and we're raised up in joy-filled adoration. Do you guys, do you guys get that on Sunday mornings? This sense of, uh, I've heard from God clearly. I feel drawn into God's presence because we're praising Him. That should be normal. We are at our best when we're experiencing life in all its fullness. When we see God as He is and we give Him His due... Praise alters our state of mind. By the way, if you sometimes if I wake up uh, early and I'm having trouble focusing or waking up, uh, I will just listen to praise or worship music because it changes my outlook. It calls me up. It's a good thing to do. Or if you're just you feel depressed, the truth being sung about God pulls me in. So praise is us at our best. We want to exemplify the call of psalm 47 that praise should be normal for us and praise really is us at our best well if you would stand i want to close by singing uh, excuse me by reading together this is from matthew 6 then we'll sing this is called the lord's prayer but the reason i want to close with this is this prayer people don't often think about this necessarily but this prayer is that god's kingdom comes that Jesus' kingdom on the earth comes, that Jesus' rule on the earth becomes the norm, not a future expectation but a present reality. So let's read that together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors.